We have been working our way through 1 Peter, and today we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, as you find your place there, I would like you to imagine with me for just a moment that you have planned for weeks to go to someone's house. You have, you have decided beforehand uh, you know, that you met him in church, and, and they said, we would love to have you come over to our house in a couple weeks. How about you come over for, for lunch on Sunday, two weeks from now? You say yes, and, and everything goes well, and they even call you the day before you're supposed to go over for lunch, and they, they say, now remember, tomorrow we're going to do lunch together after church at the house, and, and they, said, they express their excitement and, and gratitude for you coming. And so you, you are excited to go and visit with these new friends that you've made and, and get an opportunity to be with them and, and their home and get to know them a little better. And, and so you, you take off that direction. And as you journey there and you're driving down their driveway, you realize you can't see the house because the grass is so tall. And, and, and as you kind of get to the end of the driveway and you fumble your way to the house, tripping over toys in the yard and, and everything else, you get to the front door and you're like, well, may, maybe it's going to get a little better. And there's four bags of smelly trash right beside the door. And, 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 and you're like, it's got to get better than this. So you go inside and once you get inside, you, you see the toys, the floor is covered in toys and the couch and chairs are covered in and dirty clothes, and, and they inform you, we know we were supposed to have lunch ready, but it's going to be a couple of hours before we finish this. Now, most of you are looking at me like, that would be the most horrible experience of our lives. That has happened to me and my wife. And, um, and the thing that popped into my mind in that moment was, why did they do this? They knew we were going to be there. They knew that we were coming for weeks. They've known that we're coming. Why were they not ready? They invited us. They asked us to come there. Why, why were they? What, what, is, what is going on in that moment? All of us would be asking the same question, right? Because when somebody invites you to their home, you, you, you kind of anticipate that they're going to put their best foot forward, right? You, you anticipate that you're going to see the, the better side, right? Now, now, maybe it's just for the ladies in here, but maybe it's for the men as well. When you invite someone to your home, as you know in advance, you begin preparing for that, right? You prepare, prepare what the meal is going to be, and, and you start picking up, and you, you start, you know, getting on the kids. Now, I just picked up, clean this up, you know, you, you, try to, you try to get everything in order, right? You're preparing for something that's coming. You, you, are, you are preparing because you want the people to walk through your door and feel as though you want them there. You want, to, you want them to feel as though they're, they're welcomed guests, as though they're important enough to plan for and take care of and, and think about. And as I illustrate that story to you, I want us to think about how often we act in the same way. We are those messy people asking for someone to come in. We are those people that we know are going to have a guest, and yet we don't prepare for it. See, in the Christian life, we've been promised that there will be a guest, that Christ will return. He will come to our homes. 
And we express excitement about that. We sing songs about him coming. We, we proclaim the greatness of, isn't it going to be great when Jesus comes back? Isn't, gonna, isn't it going to be great when, when Jesus comes to visit us? And yet we continue to live our life as though no guests were coming. We continue to live as though nothing were going to change. See, we as believers have this problem of not being prepared. We must not waste time doing foolish things when we should be living in light of the end. The passage today is going to teach us to live in light of the end. Prepare for the thing that is coming. Peter is reminding his recipients not to slack off in their Christian life. Now, this isn't just like they're lazy, okay? Peter's recipients, they might be tempted to slack off because they're suffering. You know, you, when you and I suffer, sometimes we let things go, right? How many of you, when you've had a headache, you don't do things as well as you did when you don't, right? When you've got that, that nagging headache that you can't get to go away, you, you'll compromise on doing things the way you would normally do them because you just want to get it done. See, that is the temptation for Peter's readers, is that they might slack off because of the suffering, because of the the hardships and the trouble, the difficulties that they may be having. And Peter's reminding them, even in the midst of suffering, Christians should not slack in their duty to prepare for the return of their king. As we are washed by the Word and empowered by the Spirit, we should be producing self-controlled, loving and stewarding lives for when Christ returns. With that in mind, I'm going to read to us our passage for today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we hear this passage, standing at the very beginning, standing at the very beginning is this this small little phrase, the end of all things as it is at hand. Now, what Peter is doing here is this is in the context of of future judgment from verse 5. Remember, he already warned them, but they, that's those people that are rude, those people that are punishing and and, and are ridiculing Christians, they, in verse 5, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we have this context of, of judgment. And he says, now with that in mind, the end of all things is at hand. And you need to live in a certain way is his, is his emphasis. And, and so we have here this, this idea of the end of all things. Now, there, there's lots of movies and lots of books and, and lots of uh, television shows and lots of ideas that tend to influence our understanding of the end of all things. And sometimes you and I, when we hear end of all things, we think, Okay, end times, right? This is the end times. 
And so it, when we think end times, uh, there are some things not to do. Okay, when you think of end times, there are things not to do. You know, there are some people when they hear end times, they start charting out the end times on a camo box, right? And they got their camo and they're, they're, they're packing up, they're ready for it to go down. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is, when it goes down, they're going to be ready for it. And they've got it all charted out, you know, and they've color-coded and they think the end of all times is, you know, is they've got this secret code from the Bible that they're going to unpack. And that's not what Peter nor any New Testament author ever says to do. Sometimes when we think of end of all times, we can be like the Thessalonians and begin gazing at the stars waiting for Christ's return. Just, let's just quit our jobs and I'll stand back and gaze at the sky. He's going to come to any day now. Sometimes when we think end times, we think of an opportunity to argue. We think of an opportunity to say, well, no, that's not what my view of end times is. or That's not what I think end times would be. None of those things are scriptural. Matter of fact, when we look at the scope of the New Testament and think about end times, the, the purpose of the end times always is to encourage godly living. Always, when you look, if, you were to, if we were to go through all the end times passages, their purpose is to encourage godly living in the present. Even in the book of Revelation, how does it begin? It begins by the angels, uh, by Christ addressing the seven churches, right? He addresses the seven churches. And what does he tell them to do? Sit back and relax. It's coming soon. No, that's the end times book. What does he tell them to do? Well, you need to fix some things. You need to get some things together. You're, you've been slacking here. The, uh, the Ephesian church had lost its first love. The, the um, Thyatira had, had decided that, you know what, we're just going to do a bunch of good things. Who cares if it's right doctrine or not? Who cares if we know God's word? They, they were going to just do all the good things because Christ was going to uh, honor their good things regardless of their false theology. Um, every church had its own, not every church, almost every church had its own little problem. And, and Christ comes and says, I'm returning, prepare. Be prepared for this. The end times is meant to encourage you and I to live differently than if there were no end times. It's to encourage us to, to be ready. You may be saying, now wait a minute. He says, the end, if we're reading this right, the end of all things is at hand. Now, if I tell you, now we don't speak like that today, but if I were to go to my son and say, your spanking is at hand. You're about to receive discipline. What does that mean? Right now, right? You're going to be disciplined at this moment. Right, right now, we're, we're, you're, going to, you're going to be disciplined for your behavior. So when we see this, the end of all things is at hand, you and I may be thinking, wait a minute. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. If it's at hand, he's a little late. This is 2,000 years ago. What, what does he mean, this is at hand? Well, Peter is just following Jesus. Because Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to repent, or began to preach, saying, so Jesus is preaching. This is Jesus' message in summary, like his main idea of his sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying, wait a minute. The end of all things is at hand. Peter's saying, the end of all things is at hand. And, and you and I can begun, begin to see that and begin, well, I can lax off. It's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. 
It's not going to be the next day. I mean, look, we've had 2,000 years pass. Why would it be tomorrow? Why, why is there any urgency here? Though the gospel, through the gospels, Jesus saw his ministry as the beginning of the end. Jesus saw his ministry as the beginning of the end. Um, to say it a little bit more fancy, it was the inauguration of the final stage of God's plan. It was the beginning of God's final stage because what's next is glory. It's heaven. It's the return of the king, all things set in place. This is God's final stage preparing for his return. And you and I are called to live every day as if it were our last. Live every day as though there were not another day in front of us. Now, what happens when we start living as if we've got lots of more time? Well, when we, when we start living as though we have lots more time, we will do foolish things, right? We're just like kids. If you give kids too much free time, what do they do? Come on. They get in trouble, right? That's, that's why they got to keep these youth busy all week long. They got to give them some work to do during camp because they don't want them to get in trouble. Right? They don't want, if we get too, we're just like them. If we get too much free time, if we think, oh, well, I've got time, we'll start to goof off and do, do things that aren't as important. Do things, take time not as seriously. He's calling us to think very deeply about how we spend our time. You know, Jesus gives lots of illustrations of this, and we're only going to look at two today, and I'd like us to, to reference one now. In Matthew chapter 25, we see the parable of the ten virgins. And, and in, this, in this time, I'll just go read it for us. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet their bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They weren't prepared. But the wise took flask and of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. As we see this, this may seem like a strange parable, but we need to see in it what Peter is trying to get us at here. We need to see in it that he's calling these individuals through this parable to be prepared because we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the time in which Christ will return. And just like these, these brides were not prepared for the bridegroom, just like these brides were foolish and, and didn't think, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how to be ready. They began wasting their time. And then when the time came, they were busy trying to get ready and missed everything. See, this is us in the Christian life. When we think we've got all the time or we think we've got it figured out, we don't need to prepare. You and I don't need, think we need to prepare for, for the end. 
But when we have the end in mind and we keep it before our face, then we're constantly reaching towards that end. What time are you living in? Have you been living with the mindset that the end is far off and you've got all the time in the world to get ready for Jesus? You've got all the time in the world to, get your, to, to, to begin living in a way that acknowledges him and that worships him. How has the end times mindset impacted your life today? One commentator says, The Christian anticipation of Christ's return should have a present impact on the Christian life. The, 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 the Christian anticipation, the, the eagerness for Christ's return should have an impact today, much like the eagerness for Christmas Day has an impact for our children. As we anticipate the end, we start to live differently. Thus, he moves to this major section in the middle here, end times living. And in this, he's going to zoom out, and he's going to show us what end times living looks like. What, how do we live differently when the end times is in mind? You know, this isn't like frantic living, right? This isn't like the camel box guy I'm talking about, right? This isn't preppers. You know, where, where, you're, where you're, you're preparing your, um, your, your bunkers and, and getting ready for, for this stuff to go. How do you live? Um, it was once asked of Martin Luther how he would live if he knew today were the day of Christ's return. And he said he would go about his business. That was his reply. I would go about my business. Because every day I should be going about the business that God has placed before me. This is the business that a Christian should have at hand. There's three things here. The business of the Christian should be living in holiness. Live in holiness. That's why he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, it's a temptation when we think that the end is at hand, or actually when we don't think the end is at hand, to live foolishly, to live uncontrolled lives, to live foggy to not have a clear direction, right? Um, that, that, it reminds me of the, the Cosby episode in which one of his daughters is, is dating a gentleman, and he comes in, and he's meeting him and everything, and he says, so, so what are you going to do now that you've graduated high school? And he says, I'm just going to take some time to find myself. And, and his daughter says, so what do, you think of, what do you think of the guy? He said, I don't know. He doesn't even know where he's at, <laughs> right? That... That's where, that's where many Christians are. They're, they're, they're foggy. They don't even know where they're at. They don't even understand where they're at and, and God's time frame. They, they, are, they have no control, no sober-minded thinking because they're just trying to figure out where they're at in life. Well, what's going on? Where, where, am I, where am I at? The time for adolescent Christian living is past. We, we must move beyond the... the the simple things and, and be taught to live holy lives, self-controlled and sober-minded, clear thinking, intentional thinking lives. This is, stands in stark contrast to what we saw earlier in First Peter, right? How did they live before they knew about Christ? Well, it says in First Peter chapter 3, the time is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. In other words, your time to do what the Gentiles do, to do what the lost do, that's over. 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. No, now what are they to do with end times in view? They are to live self-controlled, not lawless lives. They are to live lives that are under control of, by Christ and according to Christ's rule, not lawless um, seeking after their own selfish passions, but seeking after Christ. And, and what is his motivation in this? For the sake of your prayers. See, holy living and, and prayer go hand in hand. When it is our desire to live upright and self-controlled and sober-minded lives, do you know what? We realize we can't do it. We realize that we need help when we seek to do that. How many of you this week, you know, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live better this week. And you thought, I did it. I, I did better all on my own. I didn't need any help. No, each of us, when we do that, we recognize very quickly that we can't do the Christian life on our own. Matter of fact, we fail at it quite often. That's why when we are seeking to live holy lives, we are prayerful. We think constantly to God about asking God to help us in these moments of temptation. Asking God to help us when we are struggling with these things. When we live with the end times in view, we live holy lives. We also live in love. That's why he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, why, why does he need to remind them to love one another when the end of, all time, end of times comes? Why does he need to remind them to do these things? Well, he needs to remind them because Matthew 24, 12 through 14, Christ prophesied, he says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Christ already knew that when lawlessness increases around us, that our love decreases, that it is a temptation to not love as we ought. But, Christ says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice that. The one who endures to the end. That's why he's, Peter is saying, if you have the end in mind, you need to keep loving. It's going to be hard. It, just ask my wife. It's hard to love me. Yeah, just you and the church. It's hard to love one another. By the end of this week, this group, as great as they are, you will want to kill one another. There will come a point in which one of you will you'll get on one another's nerves and you'll, yeah, and, and you'll struggle, right? When we live in close proximity to one another, it's difficult to love people. We have to be honest that Christians are not easy to love, that we struggle, that we, are, we have sin that we have to battle. That's why he says, keep loving one another earnestly. Regardless of the difficulties or the difficult people, love should be constant and an overarching feature of the Christian life. Now, this is not some kind of Hollywood, mushy, gushy love. This is a love that is an action. It's an action that seeks to, um, that seeks to move forward. It's an action that seeks to, regardless of these things, choose to make the hard decision. It's a, it's a love that you don't fall out of, but that you press forward in. 
This is a love that is not a roller coaster of emotions, but loves in spite of our emotions. This is the kind of love he calls us to be earnest in, to deeply desire. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this, this, that, that verse has been butchered and taken out of context. What Peter does not mean is that somehow your loving others forgives them or annuls their sin. That is not what Peter means. I know there are some that, that take it that way, but what he's saying is love covers. That means when we love others in spite of their sin, we are willing to overlook the offenses of their sin. That doesn't mean overlook their sin. That means overlook the offenses of their sin. Does that make sense? We, we don't have to allow our fellow believers. Nowhere in Scripture does it call us to allow our fellow believers to continue in sin. But it does call us in Scripture to forgive one another. Where forgiveness is sought, forgiveness should be given. We Love covers over. When you and I make a commitment to forgive somebody, you and I are making a promise, just like Christ did on the cross, to no longer hold those sins against them. To cover over those sins. So when you and I seek forgiveness from one another, we, we, are, we are covering over their sins with love. A love that understands the sacrifice it took. That understands the, the hardship that it took to forgive me of my sins. Therefore, I'm going to forgive them of their sins. This is what he calls them to be doing. He's calling them to love one another and, and, their, and their offenses to, to not begrudge them. That's why he continues to illustrate with hospitality. Now, hospitality is a long-forgotten Christian virtue that deeply needs to be reestablished. And he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is a very explicit way to express hospitality. What happens when you invite people in your home? The moment they walk through that door, what have you done? You've made yourself vulnerable to them, right? You, you've allowed them into your home. They, they know you more intimately. They know your house. They know what kind of things you like. They know what kind of person you are. They see the temptations that you may have, right? It's, it's, it's vulnerable, you know? Our homes can oftentimes become our castles, right? And we, we, we drive home. This is, this is modern suburbia, but we drive home. You pull in the garage. The garage door shuts behind you. That's like the moat, you know, the, the drawbridge coming up, right? And no one is in. I'm in the safety of my home. No one will hurt me and my family. Hospitality says, you know what? I'm going to love my fellow believers enough to let them in. To love on them in spite of the fact that they may tear up my furniture and stain my carpets and, and, and put holes in my walls and... Um, I'm talking about teenagers. No, um, we, we, you, 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 may have, you may have all kinds of things that happen, but I'm willing to do that. Why? For the sake of love. And he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without begrudging the fact that you need to let them in. For the sake of Christian fellowship, you and I should have constant people in our homes. As much as possible, you and I should be expressing hospitality. We should have homes that desire others to, to come in and, and to, 
to share with them who we are. Now, obviously, there's wisdom in that. We can talk about that another day and another time. But there, there is a, a need for you and I to show hospitality, to love one another enough to be vulnerable to people. But not only are we to live in love as the end is drawing near, but we are to live with stewardship in mind. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each of you, if you are a believer in Christ, has a gift. Each and every one of you. You have a gift of some kind. If you don't think you have a gift, then one of two things is happening. Either you're not acknowledging God's grace in your life, or you're not a believer. Because every person that is a believer in Christ has a gift. God has gifted them. That We see that throughout Scripture. There is no one without a gift. Now, some of you may be extremely comfortable getting up in front of people. So maybe you are, that's your gift. You're able to get up and you're able to teach or you're able to, but maybe you're not a, able to do that in large groups, just smaller groups. So maybe you'd make a great, uh, a great home group leader or a great um, a Sunday school teacher. But maybe, maybe you have a different kind of gift altogether in that you don't like being around people. Now, that's not an excuse to not be around people. What that is, is an acknowledgement that maybe you have other kinds of gifts. Maybe you have administrative gifts that can be used in the church, and, and you have these other gifts. And when we don't use them for God's sake, we're saying they're for our sake. We're thieves. He is reminding them, as the day draws near, continue to remember the grace that has been given to you. It's not yours. The things that you've been given are not yours. The, the, the gifts that God has given you, maybe, maybe God has blessed you to be able to be a generous giver. When you cease to give gifts, when you cease to be a giver, as Romans would say, you are ceasing to give God the glory that is due his name and taking something that does not belong to you. When we, when we hijack our ability to talk in front of other people, we are stealing from God the glory that is due His name because we're using it for our own self-interest over God's. Now, these people were just tempted to not use them. Just, I'm not going to use the gifts God's given me because I might, be, I might suffer for it. I might, I might end up hurting because of it. He's calling them to continue to use them to serve one another because they're not yours to begin with. That's why he clarifies, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, every gift has a specific God-intended use for it in our lives. You know what? There is an illustration of this in Scripture. There is an illustration of when people don't use the gifts that they've been given. Consider the story of the parable of talents. I'm not going to read it in its entirety to you, but in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, we see these men who have been given various gifts, right? They've been given talents according to their kind. The master comes and he leaves them with a certain number of talents, expecting them to do something with them. And upon the master's return, what does he find? 
two of them have been faithful, right? They've used the gifts and actually increased the gifts for the sake of the master. And they give them to him, and he welcomes them in and gives them more, right? But what happens to the one servant that says, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do anything? He goes and buries it in the ground, and then when the master comes, he gives him the one talent back. And he is condemned. He's condemned, why? Because he could have at least put it in the bank and drawn interest. He could have at least, he could have at least done what little he could do with that gift. But instead, his talent is taken from him and given to another. This is why it says in Matthew 25, 27, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God expects us to use the gifts he has given us, even in the midst of suffering. We incorporate into spiritual gifts all kinds of things. And sometimes we want to make it mystical. And this, you know, this, this supernatural thing, God works in us our natural tendencies. What do you enjoy doing? Why not do that for the church, for the sake of God? You enjoy doing administrative things? Do that to the glory of God. You enjoy singing? Do that to the glory of God. You enjoy talking to others and and visiting? Do that to the glory of God. Whatever it is, use those gifts that God has given you that you already naturally have for God's kingdom, not our own sake. Because we know not when our master will return and ask for an account of our gifts. As we consider these three examples, this life of holiness and love and stewardship. I want us to use them as a test. Not as a test to determine a checkbox test in which I say, well, I'm good. I've done all these things. No, as a test to see where we're at in the Christian life. If you were to rate how much you seek after God's holiness, I didn't say how holy you are, how much you earnestly desire and seek after God's holiness from a 1 to 10, how would it be? If you were to rate how much you're increasing in your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, how are you growing in a life that is lived towards the end? If you were to rate how faithful you are in the stewardship of gifts that God has given you, how would you fare? As we look at these things, we must examine our hearts and say, I've not even desired those things. Or I have desired those things, and I'm just failing. And as we do those things, we need to begin asking questions and saying, do I have the end in sight? Do I have this thing in the end? Because once we understand where we're going, we can have a much greater passion for it. That's why Peter says... There's an end times goal. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to start with that end phrase there. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is stating something that God has already attested to, right? He's not adding something new here. He's not adding in a commandment. He's saying, whether you're willing to give God glory or not, he deserves the glory. He is the ruler of all things forever and ever. He is those things. Therefore, my goal is that in everything I do, God would be glorified in me that I would give him the glory due his name, that I would give him the credit due his name, that I would serve him the way I ought to. The goal for this kind of life is to give praise to the one who empowered it to begin with. That's why when you and I see that, that we are, bear with me here, that we have actually loved a difficult person today, we wouldn't pat ourselves in the back and say, good job, I love the difficult person. We would instead look to God and say, thank you for helping me do the hard thing. Thank you for helping me be the kind of person that you've called me to be, because left on my own, I would not have done that. That when we see ourselves using a gift of God, when you, when you see the choir sing, and, 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 you are, and you're moved by their singing, and you, and you, and you see that, and, you, and, you're, and you're excited about those things, that you would give God the glory due his name, that he has given us people with various gifts. Because I can't sing. So, so I, I, I could want it all day long, but when I see it in another person, and I, and I see that person using the gifts that God has given them, that I would give glory to God and praise God for what he's done in their lives. Everything that we do as we look to the end is for God's glory and not my own. That's why Peter is telling them, empower your Christian living with something more valuable than your own living, than your own standard. Because you know what? If all you are living for is yourself, when suffering comes, you'll change what you do. If all that you're living for is you and your glory, when suffering comes, you know what? Your glory is threatened. So even if it's the right thing, you're going to change it because my glory is threatened. I'm not getting the credit due my name. So as we consider these things, we need to ask, where are we focused? What are we living for? Are we living for the glory of something, for ourselves, for our careers, for our family? All of them fail in comparison to living for the king of the universe. So the question we need to ask is, how will your today be affected by the end? How will you live differently today as you live in light of the end? Well, first of all, I think there's three ways, and that is think clearly and intentionally about these things. Think clearly about the end, not in the sense of how am I going to chart out the end times, but in a sense of how can the end times impact my life? Think clearly about them. That means that when we are, then we're working hard, and we're, we're sweating, and it's hot, and, it's, and I don't want to do it, but it's for God's glory that we would think about the end in light of that. That means that we would live in a manner which reflects that understanding. Live like you mean it. Live like when you say, when you, when you sing those songs about Christ's return, live in such a way that says, I meant what I said. I meant what I sang. Finally, live for something better. Live for God's glory. 
not your own. Bow with me in prayer. Oh, great God, as we consider your truth, uh, 